Let us pray once again, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Oh, Jesus, you are fairer. Jesus, you are brighter. Jesus, you are indeed the gl most glorious thing in all this creation that you created. Show us yourself today. Reveal your beauty, your majesty, your power, your authority. Reveal to us the heart of the Father. That you and the Father are one. And God, we worship you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us indeed to truly, truly and fully embrace you for the salvation of our soul. Be with us now. May your spirit guide us as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. King Louis XIV was the king of France in 1700. He wanted to be called Louis the Great. He even had invented a title for himself as the Sun King. Believe it. He wanted to be treated as a god, as the king of France. His court was the most magnificent royal court in Europe. And there, with all his pomp and his glory, he dies like a mere man in 1717. And his funeral was organized as a most spectacular funeral. And the ceremony in the church was performed there in France. His body laid there in a golden splendous coffin. He had requested before his death that as thousands of people were in attendance in silence that there would be this dramatized greatness through a very dimly lit in the cathedral only by one candle that was to stand there on the coffin so that all the quote-unquote glory will be given to this king. And as the people were there and were attending the funeral, this bishop reached down and snuffed out the candle and blew it away. And he said before the crowd, only God is great. King Louis, you die here. You're nothing. But Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. In fact, today we want to see that he and the Father are one, are equal. And however, not everyone is eager to acknowledge the greatness of Jesus. There will be people like this king, Louis XIV, who look for self-glory. And therefore miss what today we want to look as we continue our journey through John. They miss the evidence for Jesus. John 5, we conclude John 5 today. As the second series of miracles of Jesus that rotate around several Jewish festivals that are taking place in Jerusalem. And Jesus there in Jerusalem is now proclaiming to be unique divine messenger from God. 
John's gospel is pounding over and over again for us. We saw this weeks and weeks and weeks ago that he, there is a witness, the concept of witness, the evidence that are meant to lead you to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to submit to Jesus. And this controversy on witness doesn't end here in chapter 5, but we find it all the way to chapter 8, verse 14. He still has to defend himself from the accusation of Jewish lady, religious leaders who do not want to acknowledge the greatness of Jesus, all the way to his testimony before the Sanhedrin, the, the court case, just before his death. And there he is completely silenced because he has already spoken here in chapter 5. There's nothing to add. And we saw John the Baptist has started this cycle of testimony of Jesus. But there is an even greater testimony for us today. And that testimony is Jesus' own testimony. Now Jesus comes to the courtroom of these Jewish religious leaders who are accusing him. And he has to defend uh, in answer to what we saw last week. You remember we saw this healing of a crippled man or paralytic. Which then has started a controversy over the Sabbath. And he now has to answer the legal charge that we saw last time. You broke the Sabbath. You broke the tradition around the Sabbath. Not just the Old Testament command. That tells us there's still rest commander for the believer. But he also commits blasphemy. That's what they're claiming. By proclaiming to be God. And so, in defense about this divine sonship of Christ, nowhere in scripture you will find a more thoroughly treat, treated exposition of the unity of Jesus with the Father than in this chapter. We could say that is divine authority, the evidence of being the Messiah. This is one of the deepest passages of Scripture. So bear with me this morning. There will be a lot of uh, theological background here because last week, Miracle, remember, had risen this discussion. What is the relationship between Jesus and God, the Father? The Jews understood the challenge of this father-son relationship that Jesus told last week. And in their eyes it meant that he was blasphemously making himself equal with God. In verse 18 we saw last week. And so now this controversy, this courtroom with Jewish leaders begins. There's unbelieving Jews in general, but it's evident that those who are behind this unbelief are the religious leaders who are in authority and they are a real target of Jesus response there's several parallels here in our text between the father and the son it's almost as Jesus is apologetically defending his deity the topic of this trial this morning friends is that is Jesus really equal with God if he is not then he must die if he is not, he is blaspheming. And what are the elements used in the defense of Jesus? That he comes from God. And so he comes with evidence. A list of evidence that demand a verdict from the jury. And he, commends, he condemns therefore the rejection of the Jews. As ultimately a rejection of Yahweh. The God that they claim to believe. A rejection even of their beloved Teacher, Moses. I mean, this is a real indictment. And everyone else, uh, like the observers at the trial, all of us 
are called to not fall in the footsteps of the religious leaders, not to remain in doubt, not to remain in skepticism, but to believe, to embrace a resurrecting kind of faith. The most powerful reference in our text to the future resurrection of the dead, physical resurrection, but also how faith in Christ already inaugurates that resurrection. So that in your heart, there is already a spiritual resurrection if you believe, if you personally trust in Christ, removing those skepticism and doubts of the religious leaders, which are informed, however, by those five evidences or truths and facts. Evidences about its deity. Evidence from the prophets, evidence from the miracles, evidence from the Father, evidence from the scriptures. That if you trust in Christ, you already have life forever. And so again, the term of witness, it's eight times. Eight out of the 30 times that the whole gospel uses the term witness is here. And what we see in the evidence for Jesus is that the Bible, the resurrection... His miracles, His authoritative claims, the other people claims about Jesus, everything, all this list of evidence testifies that Jesus is indeed God, that He has come from God, and therefore, your response to Jesus ultimately opens the gates of heaven or open the gates of hell by rejection and unbelief. So let us look at the first evidence. This is the greatest one, the longest one. Verses 19 to 30 is the evidence of the deity of Christ. And what we see there in verse 19 to 30 is that the power to raise and judge the dead that Jesus Christ claims to himself, evidence that he is sent from the Father, that he is really God, because only God can raise the dead and judge the living and the dead. Justin McDowell, you may have read his book, Evidence That Demand a Verdict. He says, if Jesus wasn't God, he deserves certainly an Oscar. That he is more than just a man. That even unbelievers who approach both the Old Testament, but even the New Testament evidence, the quotes from the early Christians and even non-Christian sources about the person, the life, the character, and the death of Jesus Christ, not to mention that the impact that Jesus, the most famous person on earth, has had for the past 2,000 years on the world, all this evidence tells us that Jesus claims deity and His resurrection ultimately from the dead, ultimately is an evidence of Him being more than just a man, that He is God. Only God can raise the dead. And verse 19 starts, therefore, in answer to the complaint that we saw last time, Jesus reiterates what He just said. Most assuredly, remember the statement is equal with God. And now he's saying, I assure you the solemn truth that you cannot object that the Jewish leaders need to realize who really is behind this miracle of the cripple being healed. The God they claim to worship is actually the one who has performed to this miracle. The God they claim to obey is behind the son who can do nothing of himself. Nothing of his accord is what we repeated in verse 26. Jesus does not act independently from the Father. Everything he sees the Father doing is doing. Remember last, word, last week it was my Father is always working. So if the Father is 
Almighty. If the Father is, knows all things, if the Father is infinite, then the Son has all those things too. In other words, the action of Jesus last week in healing the cripple is in perfect tune with the Father's will. And verse 20 tells us also of this communion and love that is between the two. I mean, don't we say, like Father, like Son? How more for the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity? It is true even here that Jesus does not act independently from the Father, but in harmony with Him all throughout His life, in perfect unity of purpose by virtue of being one of the members of the Trinity. Both persons are members of one God. That is the marvel of the Trinity. So we don't deny in the Trinity that there is a oneness of God. There is no divided purpose within the Godhead, according to this text. Yes, there are different roles. Yes, there are different persons in the Trinity and dimensions to accomplish the same unified purpose that Jesus has come on earth to accomplish. And the point here is the innocence of Jesus. I am doing what the Father has sent me to do. So your claim of my accusation of breaking the Sabbath, of making myself equal with God, I am innocent of your accusation because I and the Father are one. And even as Christians, friends, even as people who claim to believe in the triune God, that we are called all the more to depend on God, just like the Son depends on the Father in everything. That even when people put our faith on trial... That we should be able to say that we have abided in God's will in all things in harmony with the purposes of God. And so the, the Father here has empowered Jesus to do that miracle, the cripple last Sunday. And he's saying there's more miracles to come. That will make you marvel that you haven't seen anything yet. That the resurrection will cause a far greater extraordinary wonder to your eyes. And it will be even more disturbing for the unbelieving Jews to see men raised from the dead. Verse 21 tells us of this divine power that raises the dead. Because ultimately, Jesus is equal with the, power, the, the Father in power. He has the power to raise the dead. In the Son, He has life. And He gives life to whomever He wills. Just like the Father. He can rise both physically the dead, but also spiritually the dead. However, verse 21 says, to whom we will, which means by the sovereign choice from Jesus. But again, how do you know that Jesus is God? By the power of the resurrection. That is what Jesus is saying here. That is at work in and through Jesus, that only God has the power, not only to do miracles in general, but to raise the dead, physically and spiritually. Jesus later in the, in the gospel will see, will command a dead child to be raised from the dead. But most magnificent will be in coming weeks, we'll see Lazarus, who is dead four days, and he will raise him from the dead. And Lazarus arises and he obeys. Christ is like God, effectively bringing out of death into life the dead. However, such spiritual resurrection... It's on whoever Christ will. Only available for those who will believe according to the plan of God. Not according to our choice. Not according to our human worthiness. Through our effort. But whoever Jesus will to resurrect. 
It is not Lazarus' will that ultimately brought him out of the grave, isn't he? It is not his free will. He was dead. All that needs to happen is that the Creator comes there with his voice and says, Lazarus, come out. And there he comes out. And likewise, friends, when you come to Jesus Christ, you come from death to life, we'll see today. That he pa- makes you pass spiritually from dead in your sin. And Jesus, His Word, and the Holy Spirit makes you alive. And in fact, His will was dead in Lazarus just like it was in you. But Jesus tells you to come out of your grave. And that is the first evidence of this power of the resurrection, but also the power and the authority, which is another divine claim. Verse 22, Jesus is equal in authority with the Father. The Jews are judging Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, but the Father, Jesus says, does not judge anyone. Now, He's sending the Son to provide salvation. In that sense, He doesn't judge. That by judging Jesus, they evidence that they are not from the Father. And as we saw before, this does not mean that now all judgment towards sin is suspended. Actually, the opposite. Verse 22 continues. is the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. The Father has assigned every authority to judging. That Jesus' dependence from the Father does not mean that He is inferior in authority. He is at the right hand of the Father. And both share a throne of authority. In fact, He said... To the Lord sit here until all enemies are put under your footstool. And so this is a place of authority. Christ has the full right to judge. And the relationship between the two is this. How, how do we inform the judgment of Christ? Is that if you honor the Son, you honor the Father, you, the God you claim to honor. And vice versa. That if you dishonor the Son, then you're dishonoring the Father that you claim to to actually honor. And that is the problem of the Jewish people here. The statement of fact is this. That you, it should make you think carefully. How you treat Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling those Jewish people. That they are not honoring Jesus. And this is an evidence. That their claim to honor God. Yahweh is false. The way you deal with Jesus. And particularly the Jesus of the Bible. I'm not telling you about this fantasized idea that you might have in your mind about who Jesus is, that he is a Jesus who is okay with, with your sin, is okay with who you are, is a Jesus made in your own image, which is not the real Jesus. Your reverence and obedience to the word of God in all its part reveals whether you truly believe God. Not the religious claim that these people were saying to Jesus. Not their Jewish identity of going to the temple, attending the temple, descending from a family of Jewish people. Bear in mind that one day, me and I will appear to this throne. The white throne of judgment, uh, where at the right hand is the Jesus and the Father, with every human being. And before His judgment throne, you shall give an account of what you did with Him. What you did with His message. What you did with the messengers he sent to you. And verse 24 continues here. In the midst of an apology that Jesus is giving, uh, there is a promise to everyone else. Okay? The judgment of these Jewish leaders, but he's saying to everyone else. You who are hearing this word that I'm telling you, and you believe that that I was sent from God, you have already eternal life. 
that in the present, right now, immediately and surely, this is true of anyone who comes to me in true trust. You have everlasting life and you don't go into judgment. Instead, you, that is the beauty of this promise of the gospel, you have passed already. That is not you need to pass from death to life in the future. But you have spiritually already within you that is a passing, a resurrection, a passing from death to life. By faith in the promise of God contains in verse 24. And by faith in the Jesus that scripture displayed before our eyes. That is why Thomas Goodwin, the famous Puritan, says, It is the taking of a gift that makes it the man's. That it makes it yours. Not the offer of the gift. Not the knowledge of this gift. Yes, Jesus died. But the appropriation of that. That's that the salvation of your soul depends on the hearing of this divine word from Jesus. And the believing and trusting in the Father, that the Father sent Jesus, that the, the true hearers of God's word are now saved already. That they are rich and full now of privileges. That they will enter into their royal room, not anymore to be condemned, but to be welcomed. That their punishment has been paid at the cross by their Savior and Lord. And ultimately, that you pass from death to life already through faith in Jesus. But if this passing from death to life is not there in your life, then none of this is true, no matter the claim. While you're in the body, you're still physically looking alive. Jesus is telling, while you talk, while you even mention the name of God, while you hold even... The Bible, as we'll see, these religious leaders, you, you, whatever religious activity, you're still in a state of spiritual death. And you need to be raised from the dead. While other things said you're outwardly okay, there's a deeper diagnosis to the doctor that shows you you're still in need of a spiritual resurrection. And Christ has that power. Yes, He has to actually give you life to your dead soul. And he calls, just like Lazarus, come out of the grave. Why should you perish? Why should you perish when you may live forever by faith in Christ? Uh, Kent Hughes was a minister. He's a minister. He writes of the, the change in his own life when he heard the gospel the first time. And he believed. And he received a new life from the, the Son of God. He, he tells us of he, lying awake by night. The moment that he finally was born again and devoured his Bible under a flashlight. And he says this, quote, That little Bible had suddenly come alive for me. I felt free. My sins were gone. And I had a purpose now in life. Christ has given me life. Friends, I know that despite there are individual differences, this is an experience that every true born-again Christian can relate to it. That the Son has given you life. That you have to pass from death spiritually to life. How you do that? By faith. That when you trusted in that Christ, in that gospel, in that provision at the cross, then you changed. Your entire worldview, your entire mindset is transformed. Your view of your work, your relationship with others, with your family members, everything is transformed because of this new life. 
Friend, that, that is the only way to advert the judgment of God. By embracing through faith the message of this salvation. Verse 24. That you hear the word of God. You believe that he has been sent from God. And you have everlasting life. And you have passed from death to life. That is the good news. That you and I can be saved from an eternal just judgment of God. Against your sin in hell. Because Jesus came into the world. He lived the perfect life that you and I did not live. He died on the cross. He bore the judgment of God against your sin. The wrath of God was poured out on that day. And the gospel doesn't end there. He rose from the grave. They went into the tomb and he was empty. Raised from death to life. And now, as he overcame death, as he overcame the grave, he grants anyone who truly trusts in this gospel to have and experience the same resurrection. He raised from death alive. He overcame. And all you have to do is acknowledge, embrace, and entrust your life to such message, to such Jesus, to actually put your trust in His Word and person. That He is the Messiah, the Deliverer. That's where true resurrection takes place. You believe in Christ and experience salvation. You have a new creation. And verse 25 continues. And repeats it all the way to verse 28. The theme of resurrection. He tells there is an hour where the dead will hear the voice of Christ and will live. That is an allusion to the Old Testament. You remember Ezekiel in the valley of dead, dry bones, right? Ezekiel 36. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead in a few chapters. Even just after Jesus' death, what happens? When he dies on the cross, something happens in, in Jerusalem. Matthew 27 verse 52 tells us that the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. However, verse 29 tells us in our text in chapter 5 that this is the last judgment resurrection. That Jesus will be proven to be truly God. He has authority to open and shut the doors of the graves. And send them to heaven or send them to hell. The entire humanity will have to go through Jesus. Verse 26 continues. Why is this possible? Because the fa- just like the father has life in himself, so the son has life in himself. What does he look to have life in yourself? You don't have life in yourself. We all are creatures. Only the creator has life in himself. He's self-existent, self-sufficient. Only God can do that. Everything else in this world is created and caused by something. But Jesus is that clear that He has power to give life and judge because He is God, self-existent. And He has authority to execute judgment because of His title, Son of Man, which embodies His human and divine attributes. So do not marvel, verse 28. Perhaps everyone's eyebrows were shifting in this word. They couldn't believe it. But he's saying the hour approaching where the dead will hear the voice of God at the last trumpet sound. Friday I was walking downtown Franklin and I passed through the cemetery. And I thought to myself, every single grave that you see over there, one day, every single one will raise from the dead bodily and will encounter the judgment of the throne of Christ. Every single one. Come back to life. And the 29 says, those were done good to the resurrection of life. Matthew 25 speaks of this. The focus is not just belief, but 
after believing, now you have a person that has a life that is following with good works. Now, we're not saying that the good works of these people are justifying the person, but they're proving whether they are truly justified before God once they come to the, to the throne room of Christ after death. They proved whether they were truly justified believers when they were living at the last judgment. That the faith of those who are genuinely saved will be confirmed, vindicated, we could say, by the sanctifying fruits of their life. Come, I was hungry. You came. Come, I was... They have served Christ in their life. But, look at the... The verse continues right there, verse 29. If you continue in evil, after supposedly believing... And you don't even know when you have this passage from death to life. Despite your claim to be a Christian. There is a sentence that is still condemnation. That is your price and reward. Not only they will go to hell. But their body will even rise. They will have a resurrection body. Even unbelievers. But this time their body that is resurrected is not going to be glorified. It's not going to be beautiful. It's going to be still fallen still full of suffering and they're going to be told go now is your way an eternity in judgment of hell where your body will suffer greater and greater pain than what you suffered in this life only to suffer further and further punishment and this is not a personal idea of Jesus friends verse 30 tells us that what the father says is judgment is just and Jesus is faithful to the Father's will to declare this truth. Despite their claim to, that he's blaspheming, Jesus is perfectly obedient to the Father. From here to the cross, brought judgment upon the earth because people reject the message of the gospel, hate Jesus, even want to kill him, and they will be eternally judged. Yet by the same instrument of judgment of the cross, we are called to be saved. Sinner can repent. And, and, and what we saw by the will of the Son, that means that the repentance is a gift from Jesus. Granted from the unchangeable purpose of God. From your sin, you repent, you turn away. And you trust in Christ. So the divide between salvation and condemnation version on true faith, friends. Jesus is claiming remarkable authority to send you to heaven or to hell. So you better believe in Him now. Remember, no unclean person enter into heaven. Adulterous, liar, idolater. Now, they will be forgiven. Plenty of sinners forgiven in heaven. But they, they enter into heaven by faith. And also, that faith truly brought transformation in their life. In their lifetime, they sincerely embrace the gospel. They sincerely turn away from that sin. Which can be forgiven, but they need to sincerely turn away from it. And hell is for the hypocrite. Yes, even the religious will end up in hell. Those Jewish people. Because God remains just. He cannot be bribed. Yes, you can fool people. But you cannot fool God. Let's go to the second point. I know this was a long one because it's the most important. Now we go fast. On the second evidence is from the prophets. Verse 31 to 35. John the Baptist is the evidence that Jesus is sent from God. The prophets. Have you ever thought about the probability that all the Old Testament prophecies will be fulfilled in just one man? Well, it's equal at 
It's like dropping a coin in the state of Texas, and then afterward you mix the whole state of Texas, you try to pick that same coin. And that is a much the probability to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies in one person, Jesus Christ. He fulfilled them to the last tiny detail. Not a coincidence for him. Many would say, okay, yeah, you are a Christian, you look at the Old Testament like that, but a Jewish person not. I'm telling you, all the prophecies concerning a king, a coming king and a suffering Messiah, whether it's from the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Malachi, Zechariah, you take them all together. 400 years before it happened, I was listening this week about a testament of Daniel 7, that's 9, sorry, chapter 9, verse 24. It talks about the specific timeline where this Messiah is supposed to come and be the atonement for and to be cut off from his people. Before, it has to happen before the destruction of the temple, of the second temple in 70 AD. So Jesus, we saw this morning in Sunday school, came right on time. And your text speaks of the last prophet, John the Baptist. I'm going to be fast here because we already covered John. And Jesus doesn't need a claim from a man, but even if it's necessary for these Jewish leaders, he has it. John the Baptist testified about me, behold the Lamb of God. The dove descended, the Holy Spirit, the Father, you are my son. In whom I am well pleased. The fact that he comes from God is clear from the testimony of John the Baptist. These are evidence from people. You sent for John, verse 33 and 35 says, chapter 1, he was a burning, shining lamp. Uh, Elijah is called a prophet like a burning, like a torch in an apocryphal book. Later, Peter compares the prophetic word of God as a light that shines in a dark place. What is a candle after all? It's meant to show you the way in the dark. And so the ministry of John the Baptist is a burning and shining, convicting and enlightening, passionate and true, condemning and saving. All is meant to prepare the people to receive the Messiah. And you have enjoyed his lights for a while. By this time, as we say, John the Baptist is probably in jail, ready to be beheaded because of Herod. And in verse 34, Jesus says that he doesn't need the testimony for man. Yet under the terms of this Jewish leader, he has evidence even for that. But why does he have the evidence of John the Baptist? That you might be saved. The purpose of the witness is to contemplate who Jesus is, what he did, his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection. All these evidences are meant and compelling you to turn away from your sin and believe in him. And to become truly converted. Evidences are good, not just so you stir up your intellect. The problem of Christian apologists these days, the goal is not just to get people to believe there is a God, and a creator. There's Jesus as God and he saves. And now he can transform your life. But only if, you, if it leads you to believe in Christ, that more than an historical person, that he was just like John the Baptist prophesied, the Messiah. All this evidence for the taking. But let's look at the third evidence. The miracles. John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. But Jesus did. Verse 36. These miracles. Evidence that he sent from the Father. That miracles are supernatural acts of God. And they're not magic tricks. You see it is impossible to do the miracles that Jesus did. Outdoor. In front of countless of witnesses. Repeatedly. And the intention of the miracles we saw already is to glorify God. And it is impossible for, to fabricate them. And miracles are possible if there is a God. Yes, absolutely. So that is the evidence here. 
that they prove that the message of the gospel and the messenger, Jesus Christ, is from God. And now you have to believe in the message of the gospel. In verse 36, there is a greater witness, uh, the miracles. Greater than John is the deeds that I'm doing. That are giving practical proof that I am from God. We've seen so far the miracles of the cripple last week. We've seen the sick of the son of the, 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 the noble man. We've seen the water turn into wine. And more miracles to come. They are those works that the father has given son to finish. And they witnessed that the father sent him. So let me repeat it again what we saw already. The miracles are not meant for fascination. They're not clever tricks followed by an applause to an enchanted crowd or fixing my earthly selfish problems and then I go on with my life. No, you are faced with, faced with a miracle. What, what does it mean? That the power of God is descendant, is invading the earth. And it's supposed to lead you to trust that God has come down before your eyes. God is entering your world. And you must trust the doer of the miracle over the deed. Particularly true of all the seven miracles that this first part of the Gospel of John wants to present to you. The seven signs. The book of signs. But who is actually behind these signs? And we go to the fourth evidence which is the Father. Verse 37. A voice from heaven came at the baptism of Jesus. And it says, from the Father. That is the greatest witness of all. Every religion claims that they will lead you to God. If only you would do these things, these rules and then maybe the gods will be accepting you. But in Jesus and the gospel, it is God who came down and He claims to be the only way to God, that no one comes to the Father except through me. That Him and the Father are together, so that if you believe in Allah, Buddha, Krishna, or even supposedly Christian mediators, the Virgin Mary or the Pope, you are collapsing with the true message of the gospel. That the Father... As witness that this is my son and is and the father is well pleased with him and therefore that voice from heaven at the baptism of Jesus you have not heard says the text in verse 37 they are this is a kind of a, an insult because religious leaders are supposed to hear the voice from God and intermediate between the, the, the people, God and man, and they didn't even hear the voice of God at any time. Nor have you seen His form, His appearance, the outward appearance of God. This is a, a reference to Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain. God is in Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, invisible. They couldn't see Him even if they wanted to, but in context, this is an indictment to their blindness, and we'll see later, idolatry. They're glorifying one another and they cannot believe. It's like claiming you have a friend and you have, this friend is the president of the United States, but you have never met him. You have never talked to him. He doesn't know you. That's, that's, that's the religious claim. God, we, we gather in the fact that God has no appearance and form, leads us to avoid any kind of idolatry. And idolatry is not just a statue that you put there and you bow down to it, but it's even false ideas about God. Even about the God of the Bible. That you have created a God after your own image, not the God of Scripture. Later verses will show us that even the Jewish leaders were full of idolatry. And what was that? Covetousness. Fear of men. Love the praise of men. Attaching false ideas to the God of Israel. So that they could say, I believe in the God of the Bible. But whatever he says, 
is irrelevant to how I behave. That idolatry keeps you from seeing and obeying God. It keeps you in spiritual blindness, friend. And like at Sinai, Israel asked Moses, please, Moses, don't you speak to us. We don't want to hear the voice of God. They're afraid because of their truly unregenerate nature and idolatrous nature. Later, we'll we'll do a golden calf. Many people couldn't handle the sight of a holy God. And they remain in unbelief. They remain in the sin. Even as they open their Bible, even as they listen to, to this or that, they twist the Bible because they don't have the Holy Spirit to actually, that heavenly interpreter, to then go to our last evidence. The evidence from Scripture, verse 34, uh, 38 to 47, the end of the chapter. The Bible, the Scripture, is the evidence that Jesus is from the Father. Because the Bible testifies everywhere about Jesus. Even secular people have to admit that the Bible is unique. Greatest book ever written. Set apart from any other book. Span of thousand years. Sixty and more authors. Historically reliable. He claims to be from God. And to be a revelation about God. It's supported by archaeology. It doesn't have any contradiction. Those that claim contradiction in the Bible are only seeing the, the internal diversity which is perfectly harmonized together and it is God's truth and it shows us that God is now knowable how many people you meet oh I don't know God is mysteries like no God has been revealing himself in the word of God and you can know the truth it is not a relative truth it's true for you not for me it is absolute and most importantly here the failure even of religious people like the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people at large is to fail to realize that the point of Scripture is Jesus Christ. They the fail to realize that the Bible is like a, a redemption letter from God offering you salvation from your miserable sin as you repent and trust in Christ. That the living aspect of the Bible is what these Jews are missing because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And they're blindly reciting and memorizing scripture. Verse 38 tells us, you don't have the word abiding in you. God's word cannot abide and live and remain in your hearts. That proves they are unbelievers. God's word does not find a home in you. Remember the parable of the four seeds. Only one is the good seed. They don't keep God's message in their heart. They might be there hearing, but they cannot really listen. And what is the reason? What is the way they don't keep the word? It is that, the true reason and the fact that they don't really believe in Jesus. Because you, whom you sent, you do not believe. There are some people just like don't want to believe or accept, obey the truth like these Jews. And they neglect such a great salvation especially those who hear and sit under the proclamation of the word of God for a long time and they don't understand what it looks like to have God's word dwelling in them that it really can remain to make sure that the Bible finds home in your heart and lives and when God sends us his messengers you don't refuse to listen that that's where you actually true, that you show you're a true believer, that actually believe in God. I believe in God. Oh, you want to show me how you believe in God? That you obey in the way he specifically speak to your circumstance. 
that you rely, if the Bible says A and I do B, I am disobeying God. And if I know God's word says something, but then I fail to obey it, it's like a guy looking in a mirror, I see my shape and then I go back to my life and I've completely forgotten how I look like. That is when the Bible doesn't abide in you because you're not putting it into practice. But look at verse 39. You search the scripture. I mean, something here I command. Search the scripture. But it's more likely that this is actually a statement of what they're doing. That they are actually very zealous, okay, about the Bible. But it's a critic. It's a critic of their zeal without knowledge. You search the scripture, which means you study the scripture in an intense investigation, thoroughly, diligently. You can have your head in the Bible constantly. Still be missing out the point of the Bible. There are, you still walk today in a rabbinic school, right? A Jewish school for the reading of the Torah. And you have to admire their zeal, okay? These people spend the entire day. Okay, they're married, they got kids and everything. And they spend their entire day reading the Old Testament Torah and memorizing and, and so much zeal. And it says, verse 39, in them you think that, that means you suppose that by the mere act of searching the scripture, you trust that that's enough to have eternal life. Uh-oh. There are people in plenty of churches that they think that I'm, uh, because I'm exposed to the Bible, it automatically grants me salvation, right? That I've memorized scripture verse since I was a kid. I, I, but you see, without the Spirit help, you can read you can study, you can memorize, you can have the Christian jargon in your mouth, but you can still remain in the dark like these religious people. How many can know the Bible back to back and still go to hell? Yes, sir. That's how far the deception of Satan can go. That you hear evidence about the Bible, you know the Bible, you've grown up in the Bible, you read the Bible to you, but if you're remaining unwilling to come to Jesus, who is the point of the Bible, and he says to come the way he says in the gospel, you cannot have eternal life. If you don't abide in the Word, if the Word of God does not abide in you, you hear it, and it doesn't produce fruit, you're still going to die in your sin and go to hell. Repent, friend. And repent even of your repentance. Your understanding of just the, look, looking at yourself. No. Maybe some people look at the Bible as a manual. How to do, right? How to do list. That's not the Bible point. It's God's voice. Which now is centered on Jesus Christ and His gospel. And so do that. Now they, because the problem is this. The statement in Jesus here in our verse is actually true. Searching the scripture, yes, can lead to life. Scripture has life in them. So he's not saying something false. The Bible is still the living word. The Bible still gives life. And there's an end there in our text. But, I would say, the issue is not whether the scripture have a problem or they're not able to give life. The issue is in the people who are reading and searching the scripture, who study constantly... But they're not catching Christ and the gospel in them. And how do you do that? Through the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit. Which his first primary role is to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. So that he leads you to actually 
truly turn away from your sin and trust in, in the provision shelter of the cross. That is completely foreign to them. They're missing the forest for the trees. They fail to catch the point and goal of this, the Bible. And what is the summary of the scripture? In one main goal from the mouth of Jesus, they testify about me. Every page of scripture testifies about Jesus. There was a documentary, American Gospel, and there was this indictment to preachers. Says, if your sermon makes sense if it is preached in a synagogue, then friend, I'm telling you, you are not preaching the gospel. That you can be a religious scholar of the Bible like this uh, religious leader, and you're still unwilling to come to Jesus and have life to realize that Christ is the point of Scripture. You can parse every yacht and tittle of a, of a pastor, study all your life, read books after books. But if you don't show and see Christ, you don't have a sense of God's glory. Friend, that religion is pointless. And even ultra-religious zealots of the Jewish people can fall in such trap. What about us? And, and that is an invitation for all of us that we, when we have our devotions... Well, especially when you read the Old Testament, you keep Christ in mind. Charles Spurgeon has this to say about this. That the living Christ this is in the book. You behold his face almost in every page. Now, I'm not suggesting now that you're trying to find every, Jesus under every bush of the scripture. I mean, that would be the other extreme. But yes, you read the Bible as a Christian. And as Christian scripture. Verse 41, let's continue. Uh, Jesus is not in for personal honor. None of, none of the stuff that he's saying is for getting applause of men. That honor that verse 41 tells us is the respect that you give to people because of their status, titles, or reputation from men. Now, he should rightly expect that response, but he never demands it. In fact, he was despised by them. But such human honor means nothing to him. He's not looking for human praise, whether they approve or disapprove of him and his message. Whether they will walk away, as we'll see in a few weeks. It doesn't matter to him. He's not looking for human praise. Whether they approve or disapprove of him, it doesn't matter. But I know you, says Christ. He knows them too well. What kind of people they are behind closed doors, beyond devout jargon and Christian jargon and appearance. They, they, what does the text says? That your, the love of God is not in you. And that's a big indictment. He can see and square their heart and it shows that love which God gives and should produce love for God is completely absent. Why? The way they reject the Son of God. The way they reject the message. The way they hate, persecute, twist the scripture, want to kill Jesus. There is no true love in that. And Jesus knows also that what they will truly love is something else. You know what they truly love is the praise of men. Not the God they claim to love and serve. Verse 43 continues. Here's the indictment. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Now, it's like a letter of recommendation you send that's supposed to make you accepted by somebody, and he has done it in the name of God. And the paradox, however, is that these people, if someone comes in their own name, his own authority, not God, if someone promotes himself, not, no other authority but his self-appointed authority and self-important, self-accredited, the religious professional Jews of the time, you receive him. That's how you advance in Italy, by the way. You have a career in Italy, only if you have patronizing after patronizing. And you receive glory and honor from one another, says Jesus. 
They jockeying for position, ranking rivals, advancing the corporate ladder, titles and praises from men with gladness. But this hinders them, this vain glory hinders them from truly believing in God. No wonder they can't believe in God. In fact, they are ignoring completely and, and not, they are not even one bit concerned with the glory and honor of God. He alone is God. He alone deserves all glory and doesn't share His glory with anyone else. And they don't care about it. They don't care about the glory of God. They do not seek God's honor. They're satisfied in idolatry. The, I was reading this week, providentially, on this very verse, 44, of an ancient church father, because of, I have to teach on this in coming weeks. And he has to say on this very passage about vainglory. He says, people receive honor from men, are like under some sort of intoxication. They are subdued by it and it's hard to recover. Completely enslaved to the fear of man. And what could be more wretched than this? That other admire him? Oh, he's a good man, but he's precipitating to ruin. He's going to hell. What we see here is the last aspect of the defense of Jesus. That Jesus is not here to be a man pleaser. Not to pay homage to all those vain and empty devotion or manipulation from these Jews. Which make them, by the way, beyond this. That if you love the world, you cannot claim that the love of the Father lives in you. It has no place in you. The Word of God has no place in you. If you're not honest approaching the Bible and you're clouded by vanity, glory or things the lust of this world. How can we expect for God to speak to us if we're completely blind and unable to see our blindness? No matter our claim, people in this condition end up doing suppressing the truth. And they hate that truth by suppressing. So a religion that seeks its own glory, empty of the love of Christ, crucifying Jesus, and despising the true servants of God becomes... Almost a religious duty to these people. That's how blind they were. Friend, Jesus will be honored by you either by your salvation or by your destruction. So you better bow the knee now. One way or the other, every knee will bow to this Jesus. All the vain glory will disappear. All the price of sin, the, the, the pleasures of sin will be for an instant. But there is an eternity to come. And a wage of sin which is death. Remember, the father is dishonored unless... His son is honored by your faith. So if you deny or reject Christ by your words and action, there's only judgment. Let us conclude with verse 45. There's one who will accuse you to the Father, and it's not me. It's your own teacher, Moses. They claim to believe in Moses. It's an ironic thing. Later in the gospel, chapter 9, they will say, we are disciples of Moses. So they, they set their hope on Moses as their intercessor against the final judgment. They set their hope on the law of God to be saved, but not in the gospel that Jesus gives. And the Moses that they claim to follow, just so you know, it's a mask of something else. An idolatrized Moses. Not the true Moses, because he wrote about me, says our text, concluding. We saw already Deuteronomy, the prophecy. But Peter talks about it in Acts 3.22. He preaches to the same crowd who crucified Jesus. And he's telling them to, to turn from your wicked ways. Before, again, the religious leaders once again interrupt and bring them to the Sanhedrin. So, this 
you should believe. You didn't believe in Moses writing, you're not going to believe in me. I conclude with this wonderful quote from J.C. Ryle who says, Whenever, there, therefore, anyone through ignorance or pride or unbelief neglects Christ, but profess at the same time to honor God, he is committing a mighty error. And so far from pleasing God, he is greatly displeasing him. Have I not described the 80% of those who claim to be Christians in North America today? My final question to you is this. Are evidence really necessary what, what it takes for you to actually believe? No. No, because what we see at the end of the day, the Jews did not believe in Christ, not because there was no lack of, there was lack of evidence, but for lack of true faith, for lack of any love for God. Whatever faith that refused to bow to the word of God will fail to save. By not truly believing in Christ, they are dishonoring God himself, and they are not realizing that. You, yes, you can be religious all you want and not be known by Christ. Either you are distracted by the world or you have issues with something he says. You remain an evildoer. Whatever it is, you demonstrate that you are rejecting God by rejecting Christ's word with your action. So how do we sum up what we saw today? That Jesus' ultimate claims are there. These are the evidence for Jesus. From man, miracles, the Bible, but mostly the relationship, the title relationship he has with the Father. Unique relationship. Beyond anything any human on this planet has ever seen. That he obeys the Father. He's one with the Father. He has authority to judge like the Father. He has the resurrection power like the Father. But with all this evidence, without the Holy Spirit to actually enlighten your eyes, and that is what I plead, call for Show me, O oh Lord. Show me who I am. Show me who you are. Show me the truth in your words. God's purpose in choosing us is also evidence that can, the evidence alone cannot overcome. So may God truly open your eyes. May God open, open your ears and open your hearts. Awaken you from your sleep. That Jesus is calling everyone everywhere in this courtroom that he ultimately won to offer eternal life through faith. That you believe in Him and you are already saved. And heaven on hell, friend, verges on faith in Him. But there are those who call themselves Jews. And we could call so-called Christians that rely on the Bible, boasting God, and yet fail to truly believe in Jesus. So don't be like those religious leaders who transform God into a self-contained box that is their size, that is what they like comfortable with their self-deception because it was inconceivable for them that God would reveal something further such as the Trinity to them and so they are blind Jesus doesn't fit their scheme he breaks their tradition and so they reject judge and persecute Jesus may we never follow in that category instead let us believe in Jesus realizing that this Jesus either is God or is a lunatic either is an imposter or, or is actually who said he was. For those who have eyes to see, however, the evidence is clear. And what we saw today, the biblical prophecy, his own claim, his miracles, the resurrection, and even the countless witness of people, all is an evidence that Jesus come from God and is in fact God. But friend, none of this makes sense if you don't embrace it, if you don't submit to it, and if the Holy Spirit grants you freedom from blindness. Let us pray.